0: lots of different predictions that allow us to sort of see what would be the extinction rate just from climate change with varying degrees of heating. But that has ignored exactly what you just said, that has ignored that interaction among species. Species are parts of communities. They interact with each other sometimes with thousands of other species over their lifespan. And you you mentioned predators and prey, that's an obvious one. You know, if uh, a predator is a specialist predator, it, it kind of only eats a few different species. If those prey species go extinct and they go extinct quickly, then it doesn't have the evolutionary time frame to adapt to a new diet, basically, and then therefore it runs out of food and so it dies as well. But you can also think of pollinators. I think you mentioned pollinators and plants. If many, many pollinators are plant-specific...
2: Uh, He's the Matthew Flinders Professor of Global Ecology, uh, part of the College of Science and Engineering at Flinders University. And we're going to talk about uh, his modeling of species extinction. So, Corey, thank you for coming.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
2: Yeah, it's kind of an unusual topic. What's your background and how did you gain an interest in looking at uh, the extinction, future extinction of species?
0: Well, I guess (laughs) it sort of uh, culminates into quite a bit of my career, putting together very you know simple things like looking at the fate of specific populations i've done a lot of work on everything from feral species you know trying to look at how to get rid of rabbits for example in australia or foxes or cats or pigs that kind of thing but my i sort of really cut my teeth in biodiversity conservation all going back 25 years ago i guess looking at how we are changing the face of the planet both on, on in the oceans as well as on land so i I did a lot of work in the tropics and what really sort of struck me was the the degree of the rate of change the rate of degradation really that we're seeing it's it's sort of really in your face over that kind even my time scale my lifetime seeing the amount of deforestation that's happened and the expansion of urbanization and increasing um agricultural intensification all that sort of thing and and what happens is that species suffer as a result but when you try to get a handle on sort of the global picture, we've got, you know, we've got really good indices and they've been going back for decades themselves about, you know, the threat status of most species that have, that that we're aware of, at least. We don't really have a good idea about microbes and, you know, soil organisms, that sort of thing. But the IUCN red list of threatened species has been around for decades. And it's really the, most people are familiar with, they've heard the terms like endangered and threatened and vulnerable and critically endangered. Those really come from the the red list. But they're, they're a single species and sometimes even a single population level assessment. So you say, well, this species has declined by this much over this amount of time. And there are certain criteria for placing them in the different categories. If they're very small or if they've declined very rapidly, over a very short time frame, then they get into this, you know, threatened, up to the critically endangered kind of situation, which basically means that without some pretty intense intervention, they'll they'll likely go extinct in, in the foreseeable future inverted yeah. in commas. Well, um, quick
2: quick question here, you know, for a lot not maybe not all creatures, but you know for most creatures that I know of, something eats them and then they eat something else, you know, whether it's plants or animals, et cetera. So how much can you tell about the health of the given species, not just by number, but by again declination of its predators, because there's not enough of them to eat, or the abundance of its prey, because there's not enough of them to eat its prey. And so they're going crazy and multiplying everywhere.
0: Yeah, so that's a lovely segue into the the current paper. So the idea that, you know, species are threatened from multiple Drivers, uh, including climate change has been around for quite some time. But again, most of that has been a single species assessment. So sort of assuming the species kind of in a vacuum. So in terms of climate change, it's about, you know, exceeding what we call thermal tolerances, you know, upper upper thermal tolerances. So it gets too hot basically and things die. But those assessments been around for a while and lots of different predictions that allow us to sort of see what would be the extinction rate just from climate change with varying degrees of heating. But that has ignored exactly what you just said, that has ignored that interaction among species. Species are parts of communities. They interact with each other, sometimes with thousands of other species over their lifespan. And you you mentioned predators and prey. That's an obvious one. You know, if uh, a predator is a specialist predator, it, it kind of only eats a few different species. If those prey species go extinct and they go extinct quickly, then it doesn't have the evolutionary time frame to adapt to a new diet, basically, and then therefore it runs out of food and so it dies as well. But you can also think of pollinators. I think you mentioned pollinators and plants. If many, many pollinators are plant-specific, they'll only pollinate specific species of plants. And if those pollinators go extinct, well, then the plant can't reproduce and eventually it's going to, you know, drop off the perch. Or think of parasites and hosts. A lot of people don't like to think parasites, but in fact, we have a wonderful diversity of parasites on the planet and that makes up a huge component of what we call biodiversity. So again, many of these parasites are fairly host-specific. This is why, for example, if your pet gets fleas, they don't really, they might bite you, but they can't really live on you because they're they're quite host-specific. So if the host goes extinct well then all the the parasites that depend on that host will also go extinct and in fact in that we kind of estimated that many of the, the the mass extinctions a lot of that loss has been parasites they're, they're vastly underappreciated component of biodiversity
2: well how would how would parasites help biodiversity
0: well there's many examples of that so one one uh one example i really like now i to, for the life of me, I can't actually remember the name of the species, but there is a parasite, and I think it's a type of helminth that infects shellfish in various parts of the southern hemisphere. And what this does is that it it prevents the shellfish from burrowing into the 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 bottom of the uh sea. And usually we're talking sort of seabeds, very flat, mud flat kind of kind of areas, uh prevents them from digging in entirely and covering the shells completely with the mud and the silt. What that means is there's this little hard substratum sticking up above the mud on which various other invertebrate species and plants can colonize. And in fact, without certain parasites in these systems, there wouldn't be an ecosystem in these shallow sea areas because there's nothing to attach to. It's just mud. So in, in this particular case, an entire ecosystem, and we're talking, you know, seaweeds and barnacles and other small crustaceans, they all live in and, and on these basically little bumps of shell sticking out of the mud, all due to this single parasite. Now, that, that's a quite an illustrative example of the kind of thing that parasites can do, but they also play a strong role in modifying population numbers so, you know, if 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 certain things kind of uh, get out of whack in terms of too many species of, let's say, a herbivore that eats a lot of different plants and you can get over browsing and you can get collapse and death of trees. We've seen actually seen that in um, koalas in Australia, for example, when they get hyper in certain areas, they just eat all the trees and kill all the eucalypts. And then, of course, you've got a dead forest and nothing else can really live in that. So it, it's sort of a cascading effect, whereas parasites can kind of keep those numbers down so that they're not into these you know hyper abundant densities
2: I see so parasites can uh, they they work in niche construction and you know, I guess maybe unintentionally and then also too uh, without them there might not even be food for other animals and without them uh, there might be an overabundance and habitat destruction by animals like you said gua so I guess there's at least three scenarios in which they're important.
0: Yeah and we've probably only started to scratch the surface of the importance of parasites. Now again most people think of parasites as a nuisance but they, you know every species has some form of an ecological role in its system otherwise it wouldn't evolve to persist there. So they, you know even things like mosquitoes mosquitoes are food for bats for example <laughs> you know people hate mosquitoes but but uh, they're quite an important part of the food for many different species.
2: Before we continue the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more. Visit com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Have you cataloged, I don't know, let's say the, the top 5, 10, 15 ways that put pressure on certain species? If you could even do such a thing or like, you know, what are you trying to figure out with your study of, uh, and your modeling of how species can go extinct?
0: Well, this this particular one was focusing primarily on climate change. Now I'll just back up a little bit. In the past, we didn't have, at least over the last, you know, few hundred thousand years, we've had quite large climate fluctuations, and they certainly have contributed to extinctions. The climate change and the the rapid heating sort of at the onset of the Holocene sort of fifteen, sixteen thousand years ago, probably contributed to the loss of a lot of what we call megafauna. So things like mammoths and to protodons and, you know, saber tooth cats and all those sorts of things. But humans also came on the scene about the same time in many areas. And so they, it was probably a, a combination of components in the last few hundred years, of course, it's been largely extinctions have been largely driven by over exploitation and habitat loss. And that principally, that habitat loss is principally from agricultural intensification to feed a rapidly growing human population. And so climate change has really only been on the radar for for a couple of decades about what it is doing now and also the potential for it to start to dominate the extinction processes in the near future. And many people, and I come back to these you know, sort of uh, analyses and meta-analyses looking at the different predictions from climate change alone, and this is sort of ignoring all the other components. I'll come back to the other components in a moment but they sort of took all of these very single species approaches and sort of lumped them all together and said okay we're going to lose at current trajectory say five to ten percent of species from climate change and that's just exceeding the thermal tolerances when we saw that we kind of said oh, that that actually doesn't make a lot of sense from an ecological perspective because of these connections and so when we started to look into what uh, the magnitude of those connections and the loss of those connections and what that would mean for extinctions It's sort of kind of on on, on average doubled the expected extinction rates. Now, we've also included in this particular model projected land use change. So that's continued loss of habitats. And again, we're only dealing with the terrestrial realm in this case, so just on land. And we're only dealing with vertebrates. So we haven't really touched plants or invertebrates, mainly because there's not a lot of data that we can use to make the linkages between species. Um, I'll come back to that in a, minute, in a minute as well. So incorporating both the projected land use change, so that's the increasing loss of space that that certain species can occupy, and climate change. It actually turns out that climate change is be- is going to become very soon the dominant driver of extinctions on land. How do you know? Because if unless the land use projections are way off and we we completely degrade our force even more for example things like um you know we cut down most of the amazon for cash crops and and livestock um and the west the west african rainforest collapses and we cut down most of the boreal forest or it burns down that kind of thing probably would then exceed climate change but under current projections Climate change will precipitate more indirect loss. That is what we call coextinction. So that the loss of one species from climate change, then precipitating a loss from all the dependent species more than habitat loss will in the future, even though habitat loss in the past has been the dominant driver. And that's basic based Every on it. That's based on all of the uh, assessments across the entire globe that we, that we use to construct this model and you know, we tied it and validated it to current predictions of the distribution of, of what we call diversity. So that's just the number of species well, they're, they're, in a given area.
2: What about alterations to the microbiome of these creatures? Maybe that's a precursor where it comes along with habitat destruction.
0: Oh, you know, I, I if, have... if,
2: if, if I can't eat a plant or if I can't eat another animal I normally eat, okay, fine. But if because of, again, the temperatures that I'm now in, Or because of the loss of my habitat or the loss of other creatures that I interact with, my microbiome may be changed. Maybe the bacteria that, you know, help me do XYZ processes now are compromised and no one can see that, I guess, without looking. But maybe that is what caused uh, a weakening of my ability to, to adapt or, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's a huge driver.
0: Yeah and I don't think you're wrong. I don't think we have quite enough information at the global scale, but there are some certainly some good examples of that kind of thing out there. So just to, in the model we did include a component of adaptation. So there is is there's a certain amount of prey switching if you will or resource switching that can happen. And there's there's also dispersal in the model so so species can move to areas that are more uh climatically acceptable for their life their life history processes. Um, but in terms of the microbiome, yeah, adaptability is a big part of being able to persist through massive climate changes in the past or massive disturbances. Um, you can even think of, you know, dinosaurs going extinct 66 million years ago. There's a lot of that was because there wasn't the adaptation potential of, a lot of those species. To cut to, to adjust to those new situations. Now the microbiome, there's a, there's a great example here in Australia of koalas. Koalas eat eucalypts and they actually have, um, depending on where you are in Australia, they have very specific tree species that they feed on. And that's really because the microbiome is very specific to that particular suite of species that they eat. Most koalas only eat, you know, maybe from four or five different species of eucalypts, but that changes depending on where you are in Australia. Now, if you take a koala, say, from South Queensland and you stick it in South Australia, unless the exact same species composition is here, which is usually not the case, they'll often starve. A lot of possums are in the same category. You can't really move them around too quickly or too far away from the the distribution of the where they grew up and where they've adapted to because their microbiomes are so, are so different, even to the point where mother koalas will feed what they call pap which is basically just concentrated fecal material directly to their their infants so that they inoculate the gut with the the, with the mother's microbiome so that when the Joey gets off the milk. it can start to go to, to leaves straight away and be capable of digesting them.
2: Well again, any disturbance to an animal, whether higher and lower temperatures, you know the availability of plants, et cetera, like you know the, the creature will attempt adaptation through epigenetic change, and that epigenetic change again may influence the ability of various bacteria to be successful within the creature and provide you know short chain fatty acids, whatever they're providing as a you know as a trade with the you know with the creature so. I don't know. Maybe there's this whole progression that is largely unseen that causes stresses that become more, you know more and more amplified to the point where you know the creatures can't uh, can't exist properly and then they die.
0: Yeah, I don't know if any think... of that
2: is being looked at. It's, it's uh, a big well, picture. I, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly has been looked at on very micro scales. Again, it's it's hard to get sort of the breadth of information that would be necessary to do that globally. But you've also reminded me, you know, of another process that. That contributes to these declines, and that's of course the loss of genetic diversity, which is again tied into microbial and other processes in the gut and 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 even in the brain. So you know, as a popul- there's there are two paradigms in conservation biology. We call we like to call them paradigms, but one is we we call the 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 declining population paradigm. So that's a process that drives a, li- a formerly large population to a small population. And then we have the small population paradigm. So once it reaches this small stage, all sorts of other components start kicking in that, that actually make it more difficult for that species to, to persist over time. And that is everything from just the fact that you're small, you tend to have a smaller range size. So let's take the example of the great orc, which was a large marine that lived in the Northern Hemisphere. For much of the last few hundred thousand years, if not millions, and went extinct, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it went extinct in the in the late 19th century. It was primarily harvested for its eggs. People love the eggs, also the meat, but and it was spread right throughout the north, the North Atlantic, through many different countries, in many different islands. But the, but because it was so intensively hunted, the last remaining population dwindled to to live on this small islet just off of the mainland of Iceland. And then that islet. Just happened to blow up in a volcanic explosion. And if you, you say, okay, what caused the extinction of the great orc? Well, the, the proximate cause was the explosion of this volcano, but the ultimate cause was the loss of the, the, the range of the species. Now that's just, that's just, you know, you, bad luck really, <laughs> but you're more susceptible to bad luck situations like a bushfire or a cyclone or whatever. If your population is very small but also what happens when your population is very small is that you tend to get inbreeding. So, you don't there aren't as many individuals out there that are genetically different from you. You tend to breed with relatives more often, and what that does is it drives down the genetic diversity of the average individual, and then it can lead to what we call inbreeding depression, which is defined as the loss of genetic diversity that triggers loss of fitness in some way. So, Loss of fitness could be you, your, your survival rate's a little bit lower, or your fertility is a bit lower, or your longevity is a little bit lower, or you make just dumb, dumb decisions. <laughs> we all, we'll all make jokes about inbreeding and not, you know, being connected to very um, clever ways to do um, your life. So when genetic diversity declines and inbreeding kicks in, you also get all sorts of corollary problems. Like, for example, you're more susceptible to disease or you're more susceptible to changes in microbiome or you can't adapt to different microbiomes as quickly or you can't disperse away from a disturbance as quickly as say a fully outbred individual might be able to do so you get into this what we call an extinction vortex so you get small you get more inbred you get lower fitness you get the population gets smaller and so on and so forth until you sort of spiral down into total extinction now, that's without sort of any intervention or a change of scene that suddenly brings more resources or, you know, might separate a population into two that then allowed them to evolve in different pathways, which thereby increasing diversity through genetic drift over time. But that usually takes quite a long time. And yes, evolution can happen quickly, but in the ecological scale and of communities, t- ch- t- chances are that that adaptation is not going to be able to de- to to sort of keep pace with the rate of climate change that we're seeing today
2: so are there particular species that you're studying that are in you know some level of danger that you're trying to you know uh model out what's going to happen to them
0: yeah well there's, there's quite a number of species i mean a lot of you know there's two ways that these sort of cascades can occur one is the more sort of commonly uh understood way of let's say you lose a plant resource and the herbivore that eats that plant resource will go extinct and then Uh, The predator that eats that herbivore then loses its prey and then it goes extinct. But there's also what we call top-down processes. So, for example, you you lose a a top predator and then all of the herbivores that it fed on uh, explode in number and then they eat all of the plants and then all of the other things that depend on those plants go extinct so you can you can have it sort of going both ways so on the on the sort of bottom up scale we have a good example here in australia of uh, mountain pygmy possums which are these tiny cute um they're they're so cute it's almost disgusting when you look at them you just kind of you just want one (laughs) they're these beautiful little possums that that live up in the high country in new south wales and victoria and they really depend on a type of moth called the bogong moth, and that moth it used to be quite abundant, but because of b- both climate change as well as habitat loss, and you know changing changing use of water in agriculture, they've really dwindled. and And the mountain pygmy possum really depends on the bogong moth to to gain enough energy so that it can reproduce. So this critically endangered little possum that depends on this this otherwise innocuous moth species, and they're beautiful moths, don't get me wrong, but it's not the sort of thing that you focus People focus on the, the, the cute little mammal. They don't focus necessarily on the insects that feed them. So unless we get a handle on what's happening to the bogone moth and turn around those processes that drive them, them down, we will likely see the loss of the pygmy possum because they're already in a, in a precarious state.
2: I don't know. What are some new inputs to the models that appear to be making them better? And how do you get feedback on the models? Let's say you model up, you know, a particular moth or a creature and you predict it's going to, uh, you know, have these numbers in the future and go extinct at this point. How do you keep up with the model and make sure the model's right? What kind of feedback are <laughs> you looking for?
0: You mean sort of like a validation then? Yes. Yeah. Or that well, it's
2: wrong and, you know.
0: Of course, you know, when you're dealing with a, a model of this scale, you know, individual species aren't actually tied to real species. They sort of represent the range of species that we see within the diversity of species on land today. So, you, you take one sort of agent out of that model, it, we can't tie that to a specific species. So this is this is very much sort of a relative um, expectation of change. So we, we, we're looking at different climate change scenarios, the emissions pathways basically from the IPCC. And then we look at the relative change of expected extinction from those different scenarios. Now, if you look at a single system or a single species or, or various species that are connected either through what through hosts and parasites or pollination, we, we can look at that more in fine scale, but we can't actually upscale that to the entire planet. And the main reason is most of these models rely on a, the linkage of who eats whom, So it's what we call a trophic linkage. And despite having studied, you know, hundreds of thousands of species for for centuries, we still actually have a very poor understanding of of the diet composition of species across the planet. The the worst case scenarios are really in terms of herbivores and plants. You know, let's say raising bison <laughs> eats grass, but it actually has a very uh, selective preference for a particular species, and it in that probably changes depending on where it is we don't we know it eats grass but what species of grass we know that certain possums eat leaves and some fruits but they could they might be taking fruit and leaves from hundreds of different tree species so the this this la- lack of data allows doesn't really allow us to look at the specifics of any given species anywhere on the planet We're talking about relative loss of the total diversity so the way i like to think about it is if you look out your window in 2100 and compare it to the number of species that you see today, on average, you're likely to see about you know fifty percent of up to fifty percent fewer species but more likely in the sort of seventeen to twenty five percent range but that doesn't mean necessarily that the species you're not seeing have gone extinct; it just means in your particular area they're not there anymore but what is it what does it mean
2: for something to be endangered, critically endangered, and extinct? Is it just there's not enough members of the population to breed with another to keep the genetic diversity to sustain the population or are there other yeah. factors?
0: Yeah, okay, we, this this comes back to the concept of what we call the minimum viable population size, and that's closely tied to genetic diversity and that whole concept of inbreeding that I that we talked about earlier. But it really turns out that if that if a population of any given species is below a few thousand, then it, it starts to get into that area of Susceptibility to disturbances that wouldn't normally cause a problem. This is this small population paradigm uh, I talked about earlier. So because it can't necessarily uh, escape from a localized disturbance because its range is very small because there are very few individuals and they, they occupy that particular area or because of the lack of genetic diversity drives them into this, this extinction vortex because they just don't have the, the the fitness individual level fitness to be able to produce more individuals fast enough to counteract whatever's driving them down in the first place. So it's it's kind of a rule of thumb. You know, we have this thing in conservation biology called the fifty five hundred rule, which has been around for donkeys years, and it's basically the idea that you need fifty individuals in a population to avoid inbreeding depression, and you need um, five hundred individuals to avoid loss of genetic uh, loss of evolutionary potential. So that's the idea that you can evolve to adapt to change. The work we've done genetically as well as just on sort of demographic concepts shows that those are really too small. And we're talking, we should be doubling that rule to the 101,000 rule, which basically means you need a 100 completely outbred individuals to avoid inbreeding, inbreeding depression, and at least a 1,000 individuals to maintain evolutionary potential. But when I say 100 completely outbred individuals, there's almost no wild population of any species out there that ha- is entirely made up of outbred individuals. There's always some level of inbreeding that going on. On average, as it turns out that the, what we call the effective population size. So that's the number of completely outbred individuals. If everything was completely different compared to the number of census individuals, those are the ones you count in a population. The ratio is about one in 10. So really you need about 10 times as many individuals that you count on land to be able to avoid that in depression. So we're talking about, you know, tens of thousands, thousands, if not tens of thousands of individuals of any population to have that kind of capability of dealing with stresses that come along.
2: Um, so far as I know, the ability to reproduce averages back in, you know, extremes, you know, a really large koala, a really tiny one, You know one that has this exaggeration or that exaggeration as species become less and less uh, genetically diverse do people tend to see more extremes in the species you know again weird misshapen ones or huge ones or small ones or ones with problems
0: yeah oh absolutely and and you mentioned koalas Uh, that's another great example we have a very highly inbred population of koalas in south australia in fact they were they were reintroduced here from small populations in victoria And those small populations grew up into larger populations, but they don't have very much genetic diversity. And we see lots of incidents of plasia. So, you know, weird deformation of genitalia. We see liver function problems. We see um, a higher susceptibility to disease, including things like chlamydia. So yes, they're they're kind of a little bit broken, (laughs) if you will. And yes, you can get more variation in, in size. And one of the things Coming back to koalas, which is sort of one of my pet hypotheses at the moment, is that when you get inbreeding happening, you actually end up getting, in some cases, higher localized densities of individuals, which can cause over and then tree death, which then causes these massive uh, losses of the koalas in that area because of a lack of food. And the reason I think this is the case is because in in a very healthy outbred population, you get very strong Dominance of the you know the largest individuals, so high territoriality, and that actually excludes a lot of the the younger individuals, the smaller individuals from that area, thereby reducing the local density, and it prevents kind of over browsing. But when you get inbreeding depression, you don't get this as many of these large dominant individuals in the population, so they kind of all cram in together and they eat themselves out of house and home. Now we still have a long way to go to sort of show that, but. This idea has brought about work that we're doing actually now on koalas and other species on what we call genetic rescue. So this is the idea of taking um, a healthy, outbred, genetically diverse individual from a a healthy population and bringing over enough of them into the inbred population so that you can actually spread that genome throughout the local inbred population and thereby genetically rescue it, inverted commas. Um, It's been done in a few cases. The mountain pygmy possums is actually one example where it's actually worked to some degree, but we don't have a general rule of thumb about how to do that. So we're actually working with these inbred koalas in South Australia just to see if it can be done um, and what kind of intensity of it, reintroduction and over what timeframes and spatial scales we need to do it. So this is the this is a, a definitely one tool in the conservation biologist toolbox.
2: Hmm. Okay, got it. Um, so are there any species that you're modeling that are... Uh... I mean, very quickly headed for extinction versus others where it's a slower pace. And what factors govern that?
0: Yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it really depends on how fast the species does its its life cycle. So it, te- it tends to work out that, you know, very slow life history species. So these are things that are sort of take a long time to breed. Um, they don't mature very quickly or, and then they live a long time, but they only have a few um, offspring every breeding cycle. And, you know, we've actually been doing a lot of work on on various species of shark. Probably think, oh, fish, you know, they they breed a lot. But actually, sharks are kind of like, if, if you think of it in terms of their life history, they're kind of more like a big mammal. They grow slowly. They don't start breeding until they are for five or six years old. They Many species only have one or two pups every year or every other year. And they, they live quite a long time, sometimes 25, 30, 40 years. And certain species like gray nurse sharks, for example, in Australia, which are also endangered, have this kind of very slow life history. And, you know, any sort of intense fishing pressure or shark meshing can drive those sort of species into an extinction vortex very quickly. And we've done some modeling showing that, for example, these gray nurse sharks are very susceptible to even small amounts of harvest, whether that's direct or, or indirect. Um, If you think of things like... um I don't know, pandas are a great example. You know, we we again another very slow species or elephants. Elephants are on a massive decline. Giraffes, rhinoceros, uh these big slow species. Uh, even a small amount of poaching, for example, on rhinoceros will drive those populations into such a small number that they become, they they get into this, you know, extinction vortex very quickly. And we're actually seeing that and the loss of these large mammals throughout Africa today. You know, I was, in, I was in the Kruger National Park in South Africa back in 2019. And that Kruger is probably the most well-protected, most financed, and, and one of the larger parks um, in, in Africa. And they were losing, on average, about two white rhino a day from poaching. And you can actually, you know, you can almost see the population dwindle before your eyes. And this is happening all across sub-Saharan Africa. We probably have fewer than five to 10% of the original elephant forest elephant pop. Sorry, not the uh, savanna elephant population across Southern Africa that we did 200 years ago. Giraffes are in a similar situation. These large species are are usually the ones that that drop off the perch the first. Makes sense. Okay.
2: So are are there any other factors you're looking at in your modeling that? You know you feel like they're important, but you can't get your arms around them yet as to the the impact any mystery variables that you're working on
0: yeah i guess I guess the the next step in this this phase of modeling is to really um tie it more more to extinction of species per se rather than diversity loss so we 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 plan to do that by sort of incorporating um more of a spatial structure into the the species identity in these models. So right now, we just basically, you take a a certain area of the planet, as I said, you sort of look out your window, is that species going to be there in 50 years uh, compared to today? But that, as I said, doesn't necessarily mean it's extinct because it could be somewhere else. But we want to be able now to accumulate all of the areas where these species are and look at the total loss of the entire population of all the cells where it occupies across the globe, and then look at the, the... sort of link this to the demography of particular populations and the chance of those going extinct across the entire species. So that's probably the next phase. The The other thing that we, we're looking at doing now is actually transferring the same sort of modeling approach to the oceans, because we don't have a very strong understanding of um, extinction processes in the sea. We've actually probably had quite a f- fewer extinctions in over the last few hundred years they do happen and they do happen from things like overfishing and that sort of thing but they're probably go unnoticed a little bit more because we don't have the same degree of observation in the water as we do on land because we don't live in the water basically but so if uh, ironically though we also have better diet information for many marine species so we can probably develop even better ecological models for looking at extinction cascades in the sea. So these are two main areas we want to work into over the next few years. And I think we'll, we'll come up with some pretty interesting results and probably some fairly scary results as well.
2: Well, very good. Where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go?
0: Uh, yeah, so a lot of my work I, I talk about on my blog that links to all the primary literature and that's conservationbytes.com that's conservation b-y-t-e-s as in computer bytes and i have quite a, quite a resource area there that people can look into there's also quite a good repository of information on um, a lot of the big ngo sites like the world wildlife fund the international union for conservation of nature the iucn people can check out the red list of threatened species and just type type in red list, iucnredlist.org. You get straight to there and you look at specific species assessments. There's quite a, a wealth of information out there about the fate of species. So it just takes a little bit of Googling, basically.
2: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Corey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.